it would more than likely blow to bits any container we've built. How and why am I only hearing about what feels like a character issue, after I lost the promotion? I use this, as an example, because it happens every day. We're so afraid to talk about trust, that our team members don't even know it's an issue until there are irreversible consequences. It's totally demoralizing. In our trust research, we started with a very interesting question that we wanted to answer what are we really talking about, when we talk about trust? What, if we could determine the anatomy of this big triggering word m-the elements that define it m-dash, so that when Javier calls me in to tell me about, why I'm not getting the promotion, he could give me some actionable strategies for changing what's problematic. And, better yet, he could call me in before the decision and say, here are some specific behaviors that need to change, if you want to be considered for this senior position. Let's make a plan. To get specific, our team dug into trust and identified seven behaviors that make up the anatomy of trust. Thankful again for that operationalizinator. I came up with an acronym M-Braving M-For The Behaviors That Define Trust. I think it's a good name for the inventory, because it reminds us that trust is a vulnerable and courageous process. The Braving Inventory. There's a saying from the Acero tribe in Papua New Guinea that I love, knowledge is only rumor until it lives in the bones. The only way I know to get knowledge into our bones is to practice it, screw it up, learn more, repeat. The Braving Inventory is first and foremost a rumble tool and a conversation guide to use with colleagues that walks us through the conversation from a place of curiosity, learning, and ultimately trust building. We are in the process of developing a trust assessment for teams and an instrument that allows you to measure your individual level of trustworthiness based on the seven behaviors. You can visit the Dare to Lead Hub at brannabrown.com for more information. We use the inventory with our colleagues in a similar way to how we talk about values. Each person fills out the braving inventory independently, then meets one-on-one to discuss where experiences align and where they differ. It's a relational process that, when practiced well and within a safe container, transforms relationships. Let's look at the seven elements. Some are very straightforward and some require unpacking, which I'll do after the list. Boundaries, you respect my boundaries, and when you're not clear about what's okay and not okay, you ask. You're willing to say no. Reliability, you do what you say you'll do. At work, this means staying aware of your competencies and limitations so you don't overpromise and are able to deliver on commitments and balance competing priorities. Accountability, you own your mistakes, apologize, and make amends. Vault, you don't share information or experiences that are not yours to share. I need to know that my confidences are kept and that you're not sharing with me any information about other people that should be confidential. Integrity, you choose courage over comfort. You choose what is right over what is fun, fast, or easy. And you choose to practice your values rather than simply professing them. Non-judgment, I can ask for what I need, and you can ask for what you need. We can talk about how we feel without judgment. We can ask each other for help without judgment. Generosity, you extend the most generous interpretation possible to the intentions, words, and actions of others. M-dash. Unpacking Vault, the subtleties of confidentiality have been one of my biggest learnings. Let's go back to the trust conversation with Javier, who has turned me down for the promotion. Instead of saying there are some trust issues, he says there are some vault, or confidentiality, issues. I'm shocked. I look at Javier and say, we share a lot of proprietary stuff in here, and I have never once shared a single thing outside this office that you have shared with me. He nods and responds, I believe that, but you frequently come into this office and share things with me that are not yours to share. People forget about that side of confidentiality. How many of you have had that experience where someone doesn't betray your confidence but constantly tells you things they shouldn't? When they walk out of your office, do you trust them less? Even though I have no proof that they've broken a confidence with me, I am skeptical of their ability to hold information that does not belong to them without feeling compelled to share it. When it comes to secrets, it's easy to understand our impulsivity and a lot of us have bought into the myth that gossiping or secret sharing hotwires connection. But it doesn't. 
When I walk into a co-worker's office and spill, there might be a moment of connection, but it's counterfeit connection. The second I walk out, that colleague is likely thinking, I should be careful about what I tell Breen, she's got no boundaries. M- Unpacking integrity, the word integrity may be overused, watered down, and written on way too many inspirational ego posters from the 90s, but that doesn't make the concept any less important. When I was doing the research for Rising Strong, I looked all over for a definition of integrity that reflected what we were seeing in the data. Nothing captured all three of the properties that were emerging from the data, so I developed this definition. Integrity is choosing courage over comfort, it's choosing what's right over what's fun, fast, or easy, and it's practicing your values, not just professing them. In today's culture of fun, fast, and easy, that's the biggest stumbling block to integrity. It is easy to justify shortcuts based on expediency or cost. But integrity does not work that way. I can safely say that I've never done anything meaningful in my life that wasn't hard and that did not take time. Integrity is a big one m the perception of a lack of it, or even of a tendency to cut corners, creates instant wariness. One of the best tools for putting these new skills and tools into practice is finding an integrity partner m someone at work who we can check in with to make sure we are acting in our integrity. This should be someone we can talk to, when we are questioning how we showed up in a recent exchange or if we want to role-play a hard conversation. I have two integrity partners at work and we role-play, circle back, and practice together on a daily basis. Building courage with a partner or in a team is more powerful than doing it alone. M- Unpacking non-judgment, this element is a tough one. The desire to judge is strong in most of us. What's interesting is that from a research perspective, we can quantify it, there are two variables that predict when we judge and whom we judge. Typically, we pick someone doing worse than we are doing in an area where we are the most susceptible to shame, look at him. I may suck, but he sucks worse. This is also why parenting is a judgment minefield. In our parenting, we are all screwing up, all the time M-it's such a relief to catch someone in worse struggle, even if it's just for 5 minutes. Going back to that filter of susceptibility to shame M-dash, when it comes to work, we are afraid of being judged for a lack of knowledge or lack of understanding. We hate asking for help. But that's where it gets wild. We asked a thousand leaders to list marble learning behaviors M-dash what do your team members do that earns your trust? The most common answer, asking for help. When it comes to people who do not habitually ask for help, the leaders we polled explained that they would not delegate important work to them, because the leaders did not trust that they would raise their hands and ask for help. Mind. Blown. When we refuse to ask for help, we will find that we keep getting the same projects that leaders know we can do. We will not be given anything that might stretch our capacity or skill set, because they don't believe we will ask for help, if we find ourselves in over our heads. Within my own team, I see this play out all the time, to the team members I trust the most, I will hand over important projects simply, because I know, that, if they are stuck, if they don't understand, if it's too much work or it doesn't make sense, they will come back to me and dash that makes me feel safe in delegation. Not only will things not get too far down the wrong path, but the team member who is acknowledging a need for assistance also leaves space for me to come in and help guide. It has nothing to do with intelligence or competency or raw talent, it has everything to do with a relationship of trust. When you are operating in a space of non-judgment M-I can ask for what I need, and you can ask for what you need M-Then we can talk about how we feel without fear of judgment. When I start to feel that, Smugness of judgment welling up, I immediately think, what's the insecurity, Breen? Asking for help is a power move. It's a sign of strength to ask and a sign of strength to fight off judgment when other people raise their hands. It reflects a self-awareness that is an essential element in braving trust. M- An example of generosity, in the previous part we talked about living big, and why generosity requires boundaries, what boundaries need to be in place for me to be in my integrity and generous with my assumptions about the intentions, words, and actions of others. To add some color to this concept, I want to share a story from Dara Schmidt, the director of the Cedar Rapids Library. Dara writes, Daring leadership has changed the way I work with my team. 
It's made me a better listener and given me the tools to be brave enough to deal with the stuff that's always easier to avoid. Choosing what's right over what's easy has become my mantra. All of the work leads back to self-awareness and personal accountability. Knowing who I am and what I'm about makes me brave enough to do what's right, including confronting unproductive patterns that I developed in response to long-term institutional issues. In the end, it was embracing personal accountability that gave me the courage to change. My biggest problem, as a leader was that sometimes people made me crazy. It was, as if they were purposefully ignoring me. So I'd respond by getting bigger and louder so I could make myself heard. When I learned what it means. To assume positive intent and set boundaries, everything changed. I had to accept the fact that, when I assumed negativity, it was my fault, not theirs. When I examined the times I assumed negative intent, I could see those were times where either I or my organization failed to provide appropriate boundaries or guidelines. I learned to recognize making me crazy or feeling frustrated, as huge red flags for my own behaviors. Now, when I start to go negative, I stop. I breathe and think and stay in my integrity. When I'm ready to respond rather than react emotionally, I first ask myself if I'm the problem. When I provide clear expectations and set boundaries, people perform admirably. It's not difficult to assume positive intent when I do my part to set people up for success. I'm a better leader and a better person for it. Putting the braving inventory into practice let's start with a real example from a leader who uses the inventory with his team. I recently sat down with my direct report to go through the braving inventory and talk about the strengths and areas for growth in our working relationship. When we got to our M-reliability M-issue surfaced about how I was often late to our meetings or needed to postpone them due to meetings with our executive team running late or being called at the last minute. It made my teammate think that I didn't prioritize our time together. We came up with a plan together to address this issue by building in more time between meetings so I can be on time, and by getting clearer in our communication about how we address meeting changes when my schedule shifts. We left feeling committed to a new way of working together that has led to deeper trust. I'm not sure this issue would have surfaced if we didn't have the braving inventory to walk us through the issues and didn't make the time to engage in the process. Without a tool and an investment of time, things fester and go bad in teams before you know it. We also encourage teams to work together to develop one or two observable behaviors for each of the seven elements. These behaviors can be specific to your work style and your culture. They should reflect how your team wants to operationalize the specific element, and each behavior should be something that you're willing to do, be held accountable for doing, and hold others accountable for doing. We tell teams that they can each fill out the Braving Inventory Worksheet, available online, individually, then share their answers, as you build the Team Expectation Worksheet, or the team can jump straight to building the Team Worksheet. Both ways work. This is a great example of building trust at the same time you're operationalizing it. Also M-returning to the marble jar story and the research finding that trust is earned in small moments M-getting specific with the seven elements of braving helps us identify how and what small trust building moments ladder up to the different elements of trust. There's a terrible pattern in organizations in which leaders turn to their teams, or their investors, or their board, and say you need to trust me. Typically, that happens in a moment of crisis, when it is far too late. Trust is the stacking of small moments over time, something that cannot be summoned with a command M-there are either marbles in the jar or there are not. We don't earn trust by demanding it with trust me. We earn it, when we say how is your mom's chemotherapy going, or I've been thinking a lot about what you asked, and I want to dig in deeper and figure this out with you. Even when you've put in the legwork to build a sturdy foundation of trust, and you've checked in with your folks using braving, trust is a living process that requires ongoing attention. And if you haven't made the investment and there's nothing substantial there, there's no way to duct tape it together. You cannot establish trust in two days. When you find yourself in an organizational crisis, it's either already there or it's not. I love what Melinda Gates shares about the marble jar and the braving process. After you taught me your metaphor about marbles in a jar, I adopted it as my entire framework for thinking about trust. Every small gesture I make in support of a colleague puts one marble in the jar, 
but any time I undercut a colleague m-any time I betray trust m-a huge handful of marbles goes out of the jar. Thinking in this way makes me more aware of the seemingly small things that lead to building trust, and also the small things that might break trust. The seven elements of braving have helped me think more clearly about what those small things are. For example, I focus on integrity, on matching actions to words. The foundation is a values-driven organization. If I am behaving in ways that are consistent with what we say we are all about M-dash, if I treat people equally, if I welcome open dialogue M-dash then I am putting marbles in the jar. But if I act counter to those values M-dash, if I resist innovative approaches, because I'm worried about the risk, for example M-dash I take a lot of marbles out. I also concentrate on accountability. As the leader of the organization, there aren't as many structures to hold me accountable. I don't have regular meetings with my boss. So I have to be very careful about being my own boss, about asking myself how I'm doing and owning up to what I'm doing wrong. Again, the intention behind the Braving Inventory is a tool for creating the time, space, and intention to talk about trust in a way that's productive and actionable. It's a rumble tool, a guide, and a touchstone. The Basics of Self-Trust While trust is inherently relational and most pronounced in practice with other people, the foundation of trust with others is really based on our ability to trust ourselves. Unfortunately, self-trust is one of the first casualties when we fail or experience disappointment or setbacks. Whether it's conscious or not, when we are wondering how we ended up fast down in the arena, we often reach for the blanket statement I don't trust myself anymore. We assume that we must have made a bad decision and therefore it is a fallacy to count on ourselves to deliver. Think about a time where you experienced a setback or a disappointment m-dash a small thing, not a big glaring failure where there might be extra baggage to unpack. Instead, focus on a time where you hit a bump and that stumbling block made you call into question your ability to depend on yourself to follow through on what you know is important. We all have those moments. As you hold that memory in your mind, go back through braving quickly and recontextualize the elements for self-trust. Boundaries, did I respect my own boundaries in the situation? Was I clear with myself and then others about what's okay and what's not okay? Reliability, could I count on myself? Or was my self-talk, Breen, you know, you set these intentions at 7 a.m. when you wake up. I need the exhausting 4 p.m. Breen to follow through on all that stuff with the same passion that you had when you popped up in the morning. Accountability, did I hold myself accountable or did I blame others? And did I hold others accountable when I should have? Vault, did I honor the vault, and did I share, or not share, appropriately? Did I stop other people who were sharing inappropriately? Integrity, did I choose courage over comfort? Did I practice my values? Did I do what I thought was right, or did I opt for fast and easy? Non-judgment, did I ask for help when I needed it? Was I judgmental about needing help? Did I practice non-judgment with myself? Generosity, was I generous toward myself? Did I have self-compassion? Did I talk to myself with kindness and respect and like someone I love? When I screwed up, did I turn to myself and say you gave it the best shot you could? You did what you could do with the data you had at that time. Let's clean it up, it's going to be okay, or did I skip the self-love and go straight into berating myself? You are in control of your relationship with self-trust, and you can hold yourself accountable, where you might be falling short. This isn't always possible, when you are working through braving in relationship with someone else, where the absence of trust might be muddied by ambiguity of intention. When you're on the mat with yourself, it's much easier to put a spotlight on, where you need to work. As you begin to address those areas that need improvement, remember one of the founding concepts of this part, trust is built in small moments. If you struggle with reliability, make small and doable promises to yourself that are easy to fulfill, until you get a flywheel of reliability going again. If you struggle with boundaries, set small ones with your partner M-dash like you will not be responsible for both cooking and cleaning up dinner M-dash, until you are adept at putting boundaries into action in a more meaningful way. That's how you fill your own marble jar. And never forget M-dash we can't give people what we don't have.
I'll close this part with a story from Brent Ladd, who is the Director of Education at Purdue University for a National Science Foundation project. It's a powerful story that lives at the intersection of braving trust with others and with ourselves. Brent writes, I work at a large research university as a professional staff member. I often feel I'm in no man's land, as my efforts overlap with many categories of people from researchers to instructors to administrators. Although I've worn many hats in my work, I have tended to work independently and dash almost like a solo contractor. I'm an introvert with a big dose of Puritan work ethic and a rural cultural background that taught me a successful man doesn't ask for help, he does it himself. During the daring leadership work, all of this was thrown into stark relief, as I became self-aware that I had not been doing much to build positive relationships at my workplace. I started to see that the way I went about achieving results was likely telling others in my group that I didn't really trust them. I also have a perfectionistic vibe, and I was realizing that I judged others' work harshly and dash, even if I kept that mostly to myself, it came through loud and clear anyway. I had even overstepped my role quite a bit at times, without even realizing it, by helping others do their job better in dash major facetum. This all was a big wacky call for me. I made a commitment to start building trust and connection with the people I worked with each day by simply engaging with them for a few minutes on a personal level, asking them about this or that, and genuinely being interested in their personal lives or details they wanted to share. I am a good listener and usually am able to engage well one-on-one. This initially felt a little weird for me and was not easy for me to do. I tend to avoid personal encounters and have tended to divide the work world from the rest of my life world. Over time these interactions became easier. I made it a priority each day to engage each person in the office for however long was naturally appropriate. I started to show up as a colleague. I saw my co-workers less as competition or inept. I started to see everyone as people who were doing the best they could, just like I was doing. Over the last several months, trust and connection have grown. I feel more of a sense of being part of a team and have engaged in more sharing of professional efforts as a result. Running parallel with these co-worker relationship building efforts was becoming aware that I had a fear I had held onto for quite a few years M-A cave I didn't want to enter but now knew I needed to. My backstory on this M-Years ago I had started my PhD. It was a dream to accomplish this, but unfortunately, everything went wrong that could go wrong. I ended up dropping my program, getting a divorce, withdrawing from the world for a period, returning home, and eventually remarrying and starting a family. I tried to return to my PhD work at one point but ultimately dropped it again in order to focus on my children and wife, and my full-time job. I have carried around this sense of I'm not enough due to the absence of achieving my doctorate. Fast forward to a time period a few months ago, when I had been tracking and analyzing data from a seven-year education project that I had designed and implemented. I had discovered some very interesting patterns and outcomes. Some of these results are scant or non-existent in the literature. I had hesitated for several years to submit this type of work to a professional conference and present it to the scientific community. The old voice saying you don't belong in that group m-you don't have your PhD m-they won't take you seriously kept me down. But I made a decision to submit the research work I had painstakingly conducted. My abstract was selected, and I joined a conference, where I knew not a single soul. I was an outsider. However, I experienced a sense of belonging m-that these might be my people, my tribe. What resulted is that my work was taken seriously, and I received genuine interest from others in this science community. Another positive outcome of that decision is that in order for me to travel and participate in that science conference, I had to let go of something that I had held onto with a very tight grip for the past seven years. I had organized and run a successful annual workshop from top to bottom. Every tiny aspect of it was under my control. The workshop had originally been planned for the same week as the conference, where I wanted to present my results. I reached out to my co-workers, one in particular, and asked her if she would consider co-chairing the workshop with me. I said we could open up a larger chunk of the workshop to integrate some of her ideas. Though we'd been competitive, we worked together very well, 
and I learned a lot from her efforts, and she learned a lot from running the workshop in my absence. We both gained each other's respect, and we felt like a team after that. Trust was built. Through all of this experience the last six months I have come to realize some important things. I had shown up, put myself out there, and entered the cave. Only by showing up and being vulnerable was any of this possible. I couldn't have done it, as a lone wolf. I presented myself authentically. I reached out and made connections. I shared. I realized that I am a part of the larger science community, and that I am enough. I don't need to attach my personal worth to what I produce. I bring a unique set of experiences and wisdom, and I can contribute, as part of a team. We can never overestimate the relationship between self-trust and trusting others. Maya Angelou said, I don't trust people who don't love themselves and tell me, I love you. There is an African saying which is be careful when a naked person offers you a shirt. We have to teach people how to land before they jump. When you go skydiving, you spend a lot of upfront time jumping off a ladder and learning how to hit the ground without hurting yourself. I haven't experienced this personally, but I've watched. The same is true in leadership M-We can't expect people to be brave and risk failure if they are not prepped for hard landings. One of the most unexpected findings that emerged from the leadership research is about the timing of teaching skills for rising or resilience. Often, leaders and executive coaches gather people together and try to teach resilience skills after there's been a setback or failure. It turns out that's like teaching first-time skydivers how to land after they hit the ground. Or, maybe worse, as they are free-falling. Our research shows that leaders who are trained in rising skills, as part of a courage-building program are more likely to engage in courageous behaviors, because they know how to get back up. Not having those skills in place is a deterrent to braver leadership, and teaching people how to get up once they're already on the ground is much more difficult. This is why we teach falling and failing up front. In fact, in our organization, we teach falling as part of courage building during onboarding. It's our way of saying, we expect you to be brave. That means that you should expect to fall. We've got a plan. While the merits of failing and falling have received some global attention in the last couple of years, I seldom see the fall forward or fail fast slogans put into practice alongside actual reset skills and honest rumbles about the shame that almost always accompanies failure. Mere slogans, without teaching skills and putting systems in place, are a half-assed attempt at normalizing that leaves people thinking, God, this is painful, but I think I'm supposed to feel innovative. Now I have shame about feeling shame. Better keep that a secret. Today, with millennials making up 35% of the American labor force, the largest represented generation, teaching how to embrace failure as a learning opportunity is even more important. I've been in the university classroom for 20 years, and I've observed that the resilience and bounce of some students have decreased, while the exposure to trauma for other students has increased. On the one hand, we were, and are, constantly intervening, constantly fixing, constantly helping some kids. As the head of my son's school said, many parents have gone from helicopter parents to lawnmower parents. Instead of preparing the child for the path, we prepared the path for the child. That's definitely not courage building. On the other hand, we've raised our kids on a steady stream of pervasive and systemic violence against marginalized communities, a vitriolic social media environment, and monthly active shooter drills at school. Today, some young adults are overproducted, while others are grossly underproducted. Some are paralyzed by perfectionism and what other people think, while others have found it physically and emotionally safer to shut down and or armor up. Either way, it feels like we are failing young adults, and it's easy to understand why many of them are entering the workforce without grounded confidence and rumbling skills. Millennials make up 48% of our staff, and including interns it's 56%. They are all very different people, but as a group I experience them as curious, hopeful, always learning, painfully attuned to the suffering in the world, and anxious to do something about it because perspective is a function of experience, as a group they can struggle with patience and understanding how long it takes to cultivate meaningful change. It's our job to help give them the experiences that broaden their perspectives. When they complete our Daring Leadership Program, as part of their onboarding, 
Almost every millennial who works with us has told me some version of I never learned how to have these kinds of conversations. I never learned about emotions or how to talk so openly about failure, and I've never seen it modeled. When you're used to using technology for everything, these hard face-to-face conversations are awkward and so intense. The only exceptions are employees who have had experience in therapy, which is one reason we have a special reimbursement program for mental health visits on top of our regular health insurance. My experience is that millennials and Gen Zers lean in and learn hard. They're starving for the ability to put courage into practice. I'm a pretty typical Gen Zer, and I'm starving for it too. I think we all are. But I do think some of us got more of it growing up than we've modeled and taught today's young adults. Here's the bottom line, if we don't have the skills to get back up, we may not risk falling. And if we are brave enough often enough, we are definitely going to fall. The research participants who have the highest levels of resilience can get back up after a disappointment or a fall, and they are more courageous and tenacious as a result of it. They do that with a process that I call learning to rise. It has three parts, the reckoning, the rumble, and the revolution. My goal for this part is to give you the language, tools, and skills that make up the essentials of this process so you can immediately start putting this work into practice. The research is profound in its potential impact, it's almost a neurobiological hack for your brain. I'm going to walk you through this process with a story, because I don't think there's a better way to introduce the reckoning, the rumble, and the revolution. The ham-fold-over debacle. A few years ago, in the midst of growing my companies, I decided that within a three-week period in September, I would launch a new company, go on a book tour, and skill up 1,500 people who were trained in my work. I decided in February that this was a great idea. As we've discussed, the part of my brain that accounts for timing is missing, which seems to be a scientific fact. When I made this announcement to my team and Steve, they all pushed back, but I had a secret weapon that I was keeping to myself, by September, I'm going to be an instructor-level pilot's person and ready to run some half-marathons. That way I'll have ten times the energy I have now, and this will be easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy. August arrived. Difficult, difficult, lemon-difficult. The wheels had completely fallen off my life, both at home and at work. I'd been to one pilot's class that I hated. And I was still run-slash-walking the same three-mile route I had for years. I commandeered the dining room of my house, which looked like a crime scene. Things were taped up all over the wall, piles of loose paper and boxes covered every inch of our table. I had stacks of stock photos and font sheets to sift through for a new website, and training materials everywhere. It was pure chaos. I was sitting in the dining room, on the brink of collapsing in tears, when I heard the back door open and Steve come in. He walked down the hall, headed into the kitchen, set his bag down on the breakfast room table, and opened the refrigerator. The first thing I heard him say was we don't even have any damn lunch meat in this house. In the past, when telling this story to an audience, I've asked them for their reaction to his damn lunch meat comment. Without fail, women in the audience shout out comments that range from get your own lunch meat, and it's always our fault, to give her a break. One woman shouted, leave him. That felt like a strong choice. In reality, my first thought was what did he just say? I clenched my jaws and tightened my fists. I can't believe he would be so shitty. I walked into the kitchen and said, hey, babe, but not in the nice way. I did it with the voice and tone that have launched a thousand fights in kitchens across the globe. He responded, with a little wariness and a little hopefulness, Hey. What's up? You know the big ol' truck you drive? I asked. Yet ellipsis points he responded, wariness overtaking hopefulness. I bet, if you point it west and you go about a mile and a half, you're going to run into a big ass head grocery store. I bet, if you go in there and you give them your credit card, they'll give you a bag of ham. At this point, I was very pleased with myself. He looked less impressed and more worried. Did you leave your credit card at Heb again? Damn it. You're killing my jam here. No, I did not lose my credit card. I'm just saying that you can get your own lunch meat. He looked at me with genuine worry. Jeez. Are you okay? Yes, I'm okay. I understand that it's 6.30, and you're pissed off that there's no dinner on the table. I get it, 
Wait, 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 what? I understand it's 6.30. You're hungry. Dinner is not on the table. I get it. Okay, green, what's 30 times 365? Oh, my god. On top of everything else, he's math shaming me. This is a total tack-a-down. I looked at him with that look that you get when you feel just a little bit unhinged. You wanna dance? Let's dance. In my most sarcastic voice, I answered, I don't know, Steve, what is 30 times 365? Completely refusing to engage, he said, I don't know either, but it's the number of days we've been together, and in that number of days, not once, not whatever that big number is, have I ever come home and seen dinner on the table. Not once. He went on. Number one, if I came home and dinner was on the table, I would think one of two things was happening, you're leaving me, or someone in our family is really sick. Number two, when we cook dinner, we normally do it together. Number three, who has done the grocery shopping in this family for like the last five years? Damn it to hell. This is not following the script for the movie in my head. I shrugged and kicked at the ground like a toddler. You, I guess. You buy the groceries. Still calm and more curious than pissed, he said, right. I get the groceries. So what's going on? There's a sentence that covered over my data for about 10 years, but I never investigated it because it didn't saturate across all of the interviews. However, when I was interviewing and coding data for Rising Strong, the research participants who demonstrated the highest level of resilience used some form of these sentences. The story I'm telling myself ellipsis points. The story I make up ellipsis points. I make up that ellipsis points. If you put one rising skill into practice, start with this one. It's a game changer. In fact, I'm so sure of it that I'll risk the possibility of overpromising by saying it has the power to transform the way you live, love, parent, and lead. Just watch how it works. Back in my kitchen in Houston, I looked at Steve and said, Look, the story I'm telling myself right now is this, I am a half-ass leader, a half-ass mom, a half-ass wife, and a half-ass daughter. I am currently disappointing every single person in my life. Not, because I'm not good at what I do, but because I'm doing so many different things that I cannot do a single one of them well. What I'm making up in my head right now is that you want to make sure that I know, that you know how bad things suck right now. It's like you need to announce how sucky things are in our house on the off chance that I am dash the purveyor of everything that's currently sucking and dash happen not to know. Steve looked at me and said, you know what? I get it. I know you're making that up because that is your go-to story when you're in a hard place and you are in a harder place than I have seen you in years. The work you have in front of you is beyond human scale. You are so far under the water, you can't even find your way up right now. So here's what we are going to do. I'm diving down. I'm going to find you, and I'm going to pull you to the surface, because, when I'm that lost, you always find me and you pull me to the surface. And then we'll feed the kids Chick-fil-A for day number four. Maybe we'll add some spinach just to make our way into parenting purgatory. And then we will sort this out. We will sort this out together. By this point I was crying. Thank you, I'm just so overwhelmed, and I don't know what to do next. I can't dig myself out of this. It's so much. People are depending on me. Steve gave me a long bear hug, and when I pulled away to wipe the snot off my face, I looked up at him and said, Can I ask you an honest question, though? He said yeah. Of course, as he pushed the hair off my face. Why the big proclamation at the refrigerator? Why the we don't even have any damn lunch meat in this house announcement? Was that a jab? It's okay, if it was. I get it. But was it a little dig at me, or maybe just the situation? Let me think about it. Steve is a very sincere guy, and I thought he'd come back with yeah, I'm kind of sick of the stress. It was a little passive-aggressive. But instead he said, I am so hungry. What do you mean? I asked, totally confused. I'm just hungry. I said it, because I'm hungry. I got stuck with a patient at lunch, and on the way home today I thought to myself, we probably won't eat until 7. I'm gonna make a ham fold over. And ellipsis points? I asked, still confused. And nothing. That's it. I'm hungry for a ham fold over. Uh, the ham fold over debacle. 
I'm guessing every person with this book in their hand or everyone who is listening on audio has experienced the equivalent of a ham fold over debacle. You make yourself the center of something that has nothing to do with you out of your own fear or scarcity, only to be reminded that you're not the axis on which the world turns. That's not just one of the oldest maneuvers in history, it's our brain at work. Ironically, trying to keep us safe. Holding this story in mind, let's break down the three-step process for learning to rise. The reckoning, the rumble, and the revolution. The learning to rise process is about getting up from our falls, overcoming our mistakes, and facing hurt in a way that brings more wisdom and wholeheartedness into our lives. As tough as it is, the payoff is huge, when we have the courage to walk into our story and own it, we get to write the ending. And when we don't own our stories of failure, setbacks, and hurt em dash they own us. I call the research participants who had the highest level of resilience and reset the risers. It just fits, plus I always think about the arena, when I hear the chorus to the song Riser by Dierks Bentley. I'm a riser I'm a get up off the ground, don't run and hide her cushion comes to shove and hey, I'm a fighter. The reckoning we are emotional beings, and when something hard happens to us, emotion drives. Cognition or thinking is not sitting shotgun next to behavior in the cab of the truck. Thinking and behavior are hog tied in the back, and emotion is driving like a bat out of hell. Picture me at the dining room table, when Steve makes the damn ham announcement. Risers immediately recognize, when they're emotionally hooked by something, hey, something's got me. And then they get curious about it. We don't have to pinpoint the emotion accurately and dash we just need to recognize that we are feeling something. There will be time to sort out exactly what we are feeling later. Some of the ways risers talked about knowing they were hooked include. I don't know what's happening, but I'm coming out of my skin. I can't stop playing that conversation over and over in my head. How did I end up in the pantry? I feel disappointed, regretful, pissed, hurt, angry, heartbroken, confused, scared, worried, etc. I am in a lot of pain, feeling really vulnerable, in a shame storm, embarrassed, overwhelmed, in a world of hurt. My stomach is in knots. I wanna punch someone. The reckoning is as simple as that, knowing that we are emotionally hooked and then getting curious about it. The challenge is that very few of us were raised to get emotionally curious about what we are feeling. Whether it is a failure, a sideways comment from a colleague, a meeting that is full of disconnection and frustration, or a feeling of rising resentment when asked to do more than someone else, we are hooked, and we weren't taught the skill that the most resilient among us share, slow down, take a deep breath, and get curious about what's happening. Instead, we bust out the armor. While most of us get busy sucking it up, ignoring our feelings, or taking out our emotions sideways on other people, marching into the kitchen loaded for bear, the risers are getting curious about what's really going on so they can dig in, figure out what they are feeling, and why. It's kinda like thinking, before you talk, but it's feeling, before you swing or hide. How do we recognize that we've been snagged by emotion? From the wisest part of us m-our body. We call emotions feelings, because we feel them in our bodies m-we have a physiological response to emotions. Risers are connected to their bodies, and when emotion knocks, they feel it and they pay attention. For example, since putting this work into practice, I learned that, when I'm emotionally hooked, time slows down, my armpits tingle, my mouth gets dry, and I immediately start playing whatever has happened on a continuous loop in my head. Now when any of those things happens, I try to pay attention and take it as a cue. My cue is personalized just for me, something's going on. Get curious or get crazy. If I think back to the ham fold over debacle, the clenched jaw and balled up fists were probably a good sign. Sigh. Here's the hard news about this process. Very few people make it through the reckoning, for one reason, instead of feeling our emotions and getting curious, we offload them onto others. We literally take that ball of emotional energy welling up inside us and hurl it toward other people. I'm going to share the six most common offloading strategies from Rising Strong. As you read through them, ask yourself two questions, do I do this? And how does it feel to be on the receiving end of this? Offloading strategy number one, 
Chandili Ring we think we've packed the herd so far down that it can't possibly resurface, yet all of a sudden, a seemingly innocuous comment sends us into a rage or sparks a crying fit. Or maybe a small mistake at work triggers a huge shame attack. Perhaps a colleague's constructive feedback gets that exquisitely tender place, and we jump out of our skin. I learned the term chandelier from Steve. It's used within the medical community to describe a patient's pain that is so severe that, if you touch that tender place, their response is involuntary. No matter how hard they try to hide the hurt or how distracted they are by other things, they jump up to the ceiling, or chandelier. The chandelier ring I'm describing is the emotional equivalent, and it's especially common and dangerous in power over situations, in environments where, because of power differentials, people with a higher position or status are less likely to be held accountable for flipping out or overreacting. This type of volatility creates distrust and disengagement. For example, someone might maintain their prized stoicism in front of customers or other people they want to impress or influence, but the Second they're around people over whom they have emotional, financial, or physical power, they explode. And because it's not a behavior seen by many of the high-ups, their version of the story is usually perceived as truth. We see power over chandily ring in families, churches, schools, communities, and offices. And when you mix in issues like gender, class, race, sexual orientation, or age, the combination can be toxic. Most of us have been on the receiving end of such outbursts. Even if we have the insight to know that our boss, friend, colleague, or partner blew up at us because something tender was triggered, and even when we know it's not actually about us, it still shatters trust and respect. Living, growing up, working, or worshipping on eggshells creates huge cracks in our sense of safety and self-worth. Over time, these cracks can be experienced as trauma, whether this happens at work or at home. Offloading strategy number two, bouncing hurt pain is hard, and it's easier to be angry or pissed off than to acknowledge hurt, so our ego intervenes and does the dirty work. The ego doesn't own stories or want to write new endings, it denies emotion and hates curiosity. Instead, the ego uses stories as armor and alibi. The ego says feelings are for losers and weaklings. Like all good hustlers, our ego employs crews of ruffians in case we don't comply with its demands. Anger, blame, and avoidance are the ego's bouncers. When we get too close to recognizing an experience as an emotional one, these three spring into action. It's much easier to say I don't give a damn than it is to say I'm hurt. The ego likes blaming, finding fault, making excuses, inflicting payback, and lashing out, all of which are ultimately forms of self-protection. The ego is also a fan of avoidance and dash assuring us that we are fine, pretending that it doesn't matter, that we are impervious. We adopt a pose of indifference or stoicism, or we deflect with humor and cynicism. Whatever. Who cares? None of this matters anyway. When the bouncers are successful and dash when anger, blame, and avoidance push away real hurt, disappointment, or pain and dash our ego is free to scam all at once. Often the first hustle is shaming others for their lack of emotional control. The ego can be a conniving and dangerous liar when it feels threatened. Offloading strategy number three, numbing hurt. We talked a lot about numbing in the section on the armory. The important thing to note here is that in addition to numbing being a popular form of armor, we can offload emotion through it as well. Offloading strategy number four, stockpiling hurt. There's a quiet, insidious alternative to chandeliering, bouncing, or numbing hurt m-we can stockpile it. We are not erupting with misplaced emotions or using blame to deflect our true feelings or numbing the pain. Stockpiling starts like chandelier by firmly packing down the pain, but instead of unleashing it on another person, we just continue to amass hurt until our bodies decide that enough is enough. The body's message is always clear, shut down the stockpiling or I'll shut you down. The body wins every time. Midlife and mid-career are when we often start to see the effects of having stockpiled emotion for too long. The body is holding down the emotional fort, and as a result, we can experience many symptoms including anxiety, depression, burnout, insomnia, and physical pain. Offloading strategy number five, the umbrage I named this strategy after J.K. Rowling's character Dolores Umbridge in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, and I find it to be one of the most difficult offloading strategies to experience. 
played brilliantly by Imelda Stanton in the films, Umbridge wears Udizzy pink suits and pillbox hats, adorns her pink office with bows and trinkets decorated with kittens, and is a fan of torturing children who misbehave. Rowling writes about her, a love of all things saccharine often seems present where there is a lack of real warmth or charity. Too many cheery claims, like everything is awesome or I just never really feel angry or upset or, if you're just positive, you can turn that frown upside down off and mask real pain and hurt. What's true but seems counterintuitive is that we don't trust people who don't struggle, who don't have bad days or hard times. We also don't develop connection with people we don't find relatable. When light and dark are not integrated, overly sweet and accommodating can feel foreboding, as though under all that niceness is a ticking bomb. Offloading strategy number six, hurt and the fear of high centering don't Google the term high centered. More than likely you'll pull up an image of a cow stuck on top of a fence, legs dangling on both sides, unable to go forward or backward. It's disturbing. I learned the term, because my grandmother's driveway in San Antonio was to parallel cement strips with a mound of dirt and grass in the middle. Every now and then, my grandmother would say, the dirt and grass are getting too high. I'm gonna get high-centered in my car, and we'd dig out and flatten that center strip with a shovel. High-centered here meant that the center of the car would be higher than the four tires and she'd get stuck. One reason we deny our feelings is the fear of getting emotionally high-centered M-dash that is, getting stuck in a way that makes it difficult to go forward or backward. If I recognize my hurt or fear or anger, I'll get stuck. Once I engage even a little, I won't be able to move backward and pretend that it doesn't matter, but moving forward might open a floodgate of emotion that I can't control. Recognizing emotion leads to feeling emotion. What, if I recognize the emotion and it dislodges something and I can't maintain control? I don't want to cry at work, or on the battlefield, or, when I'm with my students. Getting high-centered can be the worst, because we feel a total loss of control. We feel powerless. Strategies for reckoning with emotion This is going to sound weird, but the most effective strategy for staying. With emotion instead of offloading it is something I learned from a yoga teacher and from a few members of the military special forces. It's breathing. The yoga teacher called it box breathing. The soldiers called it tactical breathing. Turns out they're the same thing. Former Green Beret Mark Miller explains tactical breathing this way. 1. Inhale deeply through your nose, expanding your stomach, for a count of 4. 